at this time. For the uh, lesson, <clears throat> Dr. Scipione came and brought a few uh, replenishments for the book table. Uh, they now have more copies of Where Was God on September 11th. I'd be very disappointed if there's any copies of this left. Uh, when you leave, not only because I don't want Kerry to have to carry him back, but this thing is great for you to read. It is excellent to give out. Uh, and anybody, particularly non-believers, asking questions, I mean, even the title, Where Was God on September 11th? And if you really want to rouse people, read the thing on the plane and hold the cover up. <laughs> of course, then again, they might put you off the plane. <laughs> And the, also there are more copies of Star Mead. Star Mead, incidentally, is a, is a female. Um, she is in a, one of these so-called independent reformed churches, but don't hold that against her in Arizona. Uh, but the family devotional volume, Training Hearts, Teaching Minds. Parents, again, great, great volume for teaching the catechism. Tonight, I'll tell you my favorite Shisco catechism story, but I'll, I'll have time this evening. The kids will get a big kick out of it. Also, if you do want to order Valley of Vision... You can order it by, I guess Carrie will have a list, and uh, she can order it, and uh, where is Carrie now? Just uh, there, more. there you are. What if you, they mail it? They'll mail it to people? So I have to pay postage. It's worth it. It's worth it. So if you want uh, Valley of Vision, see Carrie. She'll have a list. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. What page did I say this was in the syllabus? 30. Hey, we're moving on. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess to become weary as the week goes on with all of the fellowship and activities. It's a good weariness, but it's weariness nonetheless. But help us to gird up the loins of our minds so that we give attention to these things that really should energize us in the service of Christ. And Lord, that's our petition, uh, not just that we learn more about Daniel's prophecy, uh, but that we learn about its rich rich applications for your kingdom and especially in this section for your church in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Daniel chapter 8. We are continuing now in the prophetic portion of Daniel. Daniel is writing still in a time of the dominance of the Roman Empire or the first beast of chapter 7 or the head of gold of chapter 2. Daniel chapter 8, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. So this is the second of the visions, and it's important you keep that in mind. We're moving now from a message that is designed to be for all of the nations, to a message that is particularly designed for God's people. Proof, even though you don't know it from your English versions, is that now Daniel is beginning to write in Hebrew again. He's writing specifically to the Jews or the people of God because this message particularly applies to the church of that period or Israel. He's gone from Aramaic to Hebrew because these visions are of events with significance, particularly for the church in the Old Testament setting or in what we call the intertestamental period. Malachi was completed, we'll say roughly 400 years before the birth of Christ, B.C. And obviously, Anno Domine, year of our Lord, we begin dating whenever, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 A.D. and so on. There's about a 400-year period. Scriptures of the Old Testament are done. Christ hasn't come, but God doesn't stop the clock of history. There's still Israel. There's still a nation. There's still God's people. He's still dealing with them. He's still working with them. And Daniel 8 is about that intertestamental period. Now, what's interesting is this is a great lesson in the fact that what is important to God may not be important to the world. We tend to think that the world sets the agenda for what's important to God, and that's not so. Most secular history texts say little, if anything, about the intertestamental period dealing with the Jews. Now, if you're a Jew, you know about it. It's part of your national history. But most secular texts don't deal with it. Hence, we say, it's not important. Because it's recorded in Holy Scripture, and Daniel chapter 8 is given over totally to deal with that period, it is important. 
And so we let God set the agenda of what is important. That's why, brothers and sisters, remember that what's important to God may be very insignificant to the world. And pastors, particularly, that should encourage you. You think your labors are so insignificant. Well, the world may think it's insignificant. God doesn't. What is prophesied here is a prophecy of the most horrendous challenge to the entire Old Testament period. It's even more horrendous than what Nebuchadnezzar did. And you'll see why as we go through this. Qualitatively, it is even worse than the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. It is qualitatively multiplied in worseness over what Belshazzar did. This is redemptive history. These are things that happened in the past that have lessons for the future. Historically, there is a past fulfillment, but there are ever-abiding principles that are given both to sober us and to comfort us in our Christian warfare. That's why at the very end of your notes here, I say a little question, what on earth do you do with all this stuff? And there's a play on words here. In this world, in this age, what do you do with this? Well, trust me, there's tremendous application for the church, not for the kingdom of God in general over against the kingdoms of the world. That's Daniel 7, but for the church. So let's look at the vision itself, beginning in verses one, verse 1, chapter 8, actually verse 2, and then on. Verses 2 through 4 are the vision of a ram. I saw in the vision, and remember a vision is the means of God's revealing His will to His people before the completion of Scripture. In this case, there was a full taking over of Daniel's sight process to see what God was revealing for the good of His church. These visions were the visual counterparts of tongues and prophecy. They were a way by which God revealed Himself to His people. Now remember that these visions, while they are not part of the way God reveals His will to us, is part of the way God reveals His will fully in Scripture. So we pay attention to these visions. Now in the vision, it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, or Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Now remember, he's not actually there he sees himself in his vision. You ever had a dream where you see yourself in it? And it's, that's real scary. If you see yourself in a vision and you're in a bridge and it falls apart, you wake up in a cold sweat. Well, that's what Daniel was here. He sees himself in his vision. He sees himself in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And this was a capital that was built on a river. It was a citadel. It was called a fortress, which a citadel is. He is by the Spirit made to seem presently there, even as John seems to be present in heaven. He is surrounded by these all-encompassing realities. Ulai was an artificial canal that connected two rivers that passed by Shushan on the northeast side. He is now in the capital of Persia, the second beastly empire that he had seen before. That one that would soon conquer Babylon. Verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes and saw there standing beside the river was a ram. And in verse 20 of this chapter, that ram represents the kingdom of Medo-Persia. I saw a ram by the river. It had two horns. Two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the one came up last. This was a symbol of princely power. Horns, particularly in the prophets, the power of leaders or of princes. The Persian king was the head of the army. That is, he was the one who represented the ram. What was the symbol of Persia? On the helmets were rams. And so it was a suitable Persia. It was a suitable symbol for Persia. There were two horns. One was higher than the other. One came up last. Persia later dominated over the Medo aspect of that kingdom, and that's probably what this represents. It's a little symbolic picture of that whole empire in which Persia began to dominate. That's why we rarely speak about the Medes, but we hear about the Persians. And then in verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. 
this ram has an area of tremendous conquest. In fact, Persia to the west encompassed all of Greece. Persia to the south entered Egypt and other parts of northern Africa. Persia to the north occupied the southern portion of what we would know of today as Russia or the Caspian Sea area. And so the ram moves. Verse 4, its greatest conquests are shown here, the very contours of the Persian Empire. But now verses 5 through 8, a he-goat or a male goat comes up. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. The west is the area of Greece. This represents the Greek Empire. Across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. This represents the power and the nimbleness of Greece, the land that came from the west. He did not even touch the ground. He was so fast that he did not even seem to touch the ground. Here is significant speed. This is the third beast of chapter 7, the kingdom of Greece the lower part of the torso of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. It has a notable horn, and of course that notable horn, verse 5, is Alexander the Great in B.C. 334 with 35,000 troops, significantly fewer than the Persians. He nevertheless began his conquest of Persia that would be consummated three years later. Verse 6, he came to the ram that had two horns, that is the Persian Empire, which I'd seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one who could deliver the ram from his hand. Here is fury bringing defeat to the land of Persia. Alexander had completely devastated Persia. Imagine the power of Alexander the Great. Age 21, he becomes general of the armies of Greece. Five years later, the whole known world is conquered by him. Epitomized by what he did with Persia. Now, verse 7, verse 8. Therefore the male goat, that is Greece, grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. At the age of 32, Alexander the Great died an abrupt and early death at the very peak of his power nine years after the defeat of Persia. And in his place, four notable ones came up toward the winds of heaven. Four notable ones after the great conflict for three decades after Alexander's death there emerged four leaders of the then Macedonian or Greek empire. The four winds of heaven representing Macedonia, the west, Thrace and Asia Minor to the north, former Babylonian empire and Syria, which would become the Seleucids. Seleucid, the Assyrian area. Think of, think of Syria today in that area. That was an empire called the Seleucids in the east. And in the south, Egypt which originally controlled, actually, all of Israel. By that time, Israel had some involvement in Israel. So, this is the empire. It's divided into four parts, west, north, east, and south. What's significant, particularly, is the east, the Seleucid, former Babylonian empire. Now, remember, Daniel isn't pulling out old copies of the Los Angeles Times to tell, put this stuff together. I mean, this is the liberal view of Daniel. See, liberals have looked at Daniel and they say these prophecies are so specific of things that were going to come. He couldn't have written these things before the fact. Well, you'd have to believe that, that it was inspired by God or something. And so they say, well, Daniel then was written in the second century before Christ. What's the proof of that? Well, there isn't any proof except for the fact that he couldn't have written it before the fact, because in order to prophesy these things so specifically, I mean, it would have to have been inspired by God. We know that's not the case. But see, that's how specific these prophecies are. And that, brothers and sisters, is another reason 
why we defend and maintain the absolute authority of Holy Scripture. The fool is the one who questions what the Word of God says when the Bible is full. Dr. Van Til would speak of the self-authenticating power of Holy Scripture. And that's what he means. As you study the Scriptures, there are these internal evidences, proofs, that this is the Word of God. And here's one of them. Now the little horn of chapter 8, verses 9 through 14. This little horn is not the same as the little horn in chapter 7. This is a different little horn. We're dealing with the intertestamental period. And out of one of them, that is out of one of the four notable ones, Greek empire divided north, south, east, and west, one of those, in this case, the emperor, the empire that was in the east, the Seleucid Empire, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. This is a small empire. It really wasn't significant in terms of ancient history, but it was significant for sacred history that preceded, really, the development of the empire of Rome. Remember, you have the Roman Republic that preceded the Roman Empire that began technically in the first century before Christ. So this is in the period of the Roman Republic, ten horns, things are hunky-dory, but now you've got this little horn operating in his own sphere. This little horn, most would say, and I think rightly, is a leader called Antiochus IV, who reigned between 175 and 164 B.C. He called himself Epiphanes, the manifestation. Syria became, under the leadership of Seleucus, a Seleucian kingdom. He was the main Seleucid king. He captured Egypt and then moved to capture Israel. That was about the extent of his empire. He captured parts of Egypt, took it over from what was Persia, and then moved to take over Israel. What is called here the pleasant land? Note again in verse 9, toward the east and toward the pleasant or glorious land, literally the glory. This was the place in which God promised to make His glory dwell. Now there's no evidence that God's glory dwelt in that rebuilt temple as it had in the first one. But God had attached His glory to that land. His word was there. His priests were there. The temple was there. The milk and honey was there. And so it was known as the glory or the glorious or the pleasant land. He invaded the land of Israel. Verse 10. And it grew up, that is this horn grew up, to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Remember that God identifies Himself with His people. You hurt God's people and you're attacking Him. You attack the hosts or the armies of Israel and you are attacking the hosts of heaven. And that's the language that's used here. Antiochus attacked, we would say, the saints. Abram, your descendants are going to be like the stars for a multitude. And Antiochus went after them. The hosts, the armies... He attacked the armies of Israel who were the instruments in life of the armies of heaven. And he cast them down, he cast down their stars to the ground and trampled them. Antiochus, in a rage against Israel, sought to destroy the Israelites, even as in Revelation 12 and in verse 4. There was a casting down of the stars to the ground and a raging beast went out to destroy them. So did Antiochus seek to do that. It is B.C. 168. Antiochus enters into Jerusalem. 80,000 people are slain by this vicious madman. 40,000 are slain in three days. Jerusalem was a pool of the blood of the saints of the Old Testament. Those he did not kill, he sold into slavery. He burned the houses and the city walls he destroyed. It was the first example of a strictly 
religious persecution in the land. Remember what had happened before. Nebuchadnezzar took the people out of the land, but he didn't persecute them. He either left them there, left them alone, or took them into Babylon and some went to Egypt. This is the first strictly religious persecution in the land. Verse 24, you see the reference. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He will also destroy the mighty and also the holy people. A religious persecution under Antiochus. But there's more in this qualitatively different attack on the people of God. Verse 11, He even exalted Himself as high as the Prince of the Host. He made Himself out to be like the Lord of the armies. And by Him, that is by Antiochus, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. The pride and the blasphemy of Antiochus. The nearest I think we can imagine to relate this to is Adolf Hitler. Particularly in his attack on the Jews. Now don't say this refers to Adolf Hitler. That's a very bad biblical interpretation. This is referring to Antiochus. But Hitler, remember God works using sparks in the Old Testament. There are sparks that come up in history. Shadows in the Old Testament you will often see in realities in the New Covenant period. This man had a vehement hatred of the Jews. He had a hatred of everything that was Jewish. And he was a madman. He was crazy. Why did he hate them so much? Because he was the manifestation. He was God. And you know, the world functions on the same principle God does. The world also says, you're to have no other God before me. And that's the principle that Antiochus worked on. He exalted himself. Epiphanes, he called himself Theos, Antiochus, Epiphanes. The illustration and the illumination of God. That's how he regarded himself. The visible manifestation of divinity. He claimed to be able to control the waves of the sea and he claimed to be able to weigh the mountains in a balance. That's why he was called Epimanes, madman, by those around him. He was a crazy guy. He was a madman. Daily sacrifice was taken away. He ordered the cessation of Jewish sacrifices and replaced them with two things. One, desecrating the temple by offering the blood of pigs on the altar. And when the priests resisted, he'd slit their throats and offer them up on the altar. He put the idol of Jupiter and Olympus, pagan gods, in the holy place. Why? Verse 12. Because of transgression... An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. Israel was living in a very wicked, apostate state. It was after this that Israel developed a very special, strict form of righteousness called Phariseeism. Because God judged Israel for its coldness and declension because of Israel's transgression. This madman would come and be an instrument of God's judgment. Notice that this epiphany of deity, like Belshazzar and like Nebuchadnezzar, is in the hand of God because of transgression. An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. He was given that power to be the instrument of judgment to Israel. And because Israel had cast truth to the ground, this man would be an instrument to cast truth down to the ground. He did all this, did Antiochus, and he prospered. Why was there such turmoil? God was judging His people who had transgressed His covenant. Remember the end of Malachi, verse 6. God says, you don't obey, and I'm going to come and I'm going to smite you with a curse. And this is part of that curse, although not all of it, that God would send. He cast down truth quite literally. He destroyed copies of the Old Testament. 
and ripped them up and cast them to the ground and burned them. He was a dastardly ruler, ruining the one place on earth in which God caused his name to dwell. And it was done to the very saints of God's people. Friends, when God sends his judgment, it's not a pretty picture. And it's very scary. See, we look at the world and we say, ah, judgment on the world. Ah, if judgment must begin, let it begin at the house of God. This is an Old Testament picture of that kind of judgment. Verses 13 and 14. Two angels are beholding the vision. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trembled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Two angels are beholding the vision. And obviously the question is, how long is this stuff going to last? Answer, 2,300 days. Then the temple cleansed after six years and four months. It is interesting. 171 B.C. Antiochus begins to lay the temple waste and steals from its treasury. 165 B.C. Under the leadership of a Jewish nationalist named Judas Maccabeus, on December 25th, the temple was cleansed of all of its idols and all of the pig's blood and all of the human blood was cleansed in the temple. The temple was repaired and the lamps of a menorah were relit. The first celebration of the festival of lights, what Jews call Hanukkah, the cleansing of the temple, interestingly, almost exactly 2,300 days, almost exactly, not exact, of Antiochus's wicked occupation. Marvelous, marvelous teaching and accuracy of the Word of God. Now, the interpretation, let's get a more careful look at what's given. Verses 15 through 19, here's the interpreter. It happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, that canal, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Gabriel and Michael, here's a great question, parents, you can give to your children. What are the only two names, proper names of angels given in the Bible? Gabriel and Michael. Here is where Gabriel is spoken. He is a mighty one. He is one of the heroes of God, one of the upper echelons, if you will, of the angels. Make this man understand it. It is God's command. Folks, you wouldn't have any understanding of God if it weren't for His grace. And that's why you don't look down upon people who don't understand the things of God. You pity them and say, Lord God, have mercy. My decree, make this man understand these things. Gabriel, you're a ministering spirit sent forth to minister to this heir of salvation. Tell him what's to come. And here's the answer. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end, not the time right before Jesus returns. That's not what's in view in here. Daniel's not skipping over thousands of years of history to speak of the advent of one who hasn't even come yet. And in this case, as is usually the case in the Old Testament, means the conclusion of this particular matter. The vision refers to the time of the end. There's a time of this certain intertestamental period that is to come. It is the end of the special afflictions that would come on the Old Testament people of God at the end of that age. Now, Daniel 9, which we'll cover a bit of tomorrow, God willing, will develop that somewhat. Daniel is afraid. He fell on his face. He is in a deep sleep. He was in a deep sleep with his face to the ground, but he touched me. Here he is touched by an angel, and he stood upright. And brothers and sisters, isn't it interesting what does happen when people appear before the emissaries of God? They don't clap their hands in glee. They fall down on their faces. We have a slightly mentally handicapped person who every so often will pop into the church in Franklin Square 
and he only has a few words to say. He kind of looks at you with glassy eyes, and he says, Jesus is coming soon, right? Jesus is coming soon, right? Jesus is coming soon, right? And one of our elders got a little bit aggravated with him one day, and he looked at him and he said, Philip, when Jesus does come back, we're all going to fall flat on our faces before him. So this is the way he responds. He is flat on his faces because of the providence of God and because of the angels. But now verse 19. What is in view? He said, look, I'm making known to you what will happen in the latter time of indignation. The wrath that began with the exile of the Jews going into captivity cultivating in and ending with the wickedness of Antiochus that would begin bring, practically speaking, the Old Testament period to an end. At the time appointed, there will be an end. A set, decreed time for its ending. Remember verse 13? He says, How long until the end of the desolation of the sanctuary? And that's what's in view. Not dealing again with the end of the New Testament period. That's not the subject of this chapter. The ram, verse 20, which you saw having the two horns, they're the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece, the large horn between its eyes, the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms will arrive out of that nation, but not with its power. That's all covered in chapter 7. But now the little horn, a different one. And in the latter time of their kingdom, that is the kingdom of Greece, when its remnants are there, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. His, well, we might as well stop and look at that. It's the end of the Grecian kingdom. The transgressors, you'll notice, verse 23 are the transgressors known as the Israelites. They had continued to transgress against the Lord. How did they do it? When Israel went back to the land, they began to secularize. The Greek empire that came to prominence had such a pervasive force that even many of those man-centered things became part of Israel's culture, particularly the introduction in Israel of the Olympic Games, monuments to the power and prowess of man. And would you believe it? They even introduced pagan sacrifices into other parts of Israel so they could meld in with the culture of the Greeks. And hence they had transgressed but at the latter time of their kingdom, the kingdom of the Greeks and the other beasts, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, sinful actions that could not be permitted to go any further by the Israelites, would be dealt with by people of fierce countenance, hard, unyielding, determined as adamant. You read in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 50, that same term is used where God says, I'm going to send the judgment of people with fierce features should you break my covenant. They will understand sinister schemes. And if there's anything that's an understatement under inspiration, it is this. Understanding sinister schemes meant these were people, in this case Antiochus, who reveled in perversion. They reveled in wickedness. They contrived plans so diabolical they would make you sick. I can't imagine a leader like Adolf Hitler who delighted to sit and watch his opponents hang to their death by piano wires. And he would film it so he could watch it at night. It's that kind of understanding of sinister schemes that's in view. Masters of cunning and wickedness such as Antiochus practiced. Verse 24, His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Notice again, he is under the sovereignty of God. He shall destroy fearfully the persecution of the saints and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. To a remarkable degree, he says, 
this one will destroy. He will be an amazement to the Jews. Antiochus burned homes, destroyed city walls, pillaged the temples, taught and burned or burned the Torah scrolls, something never before witnessed. And that's not enough, verse 25. Through his cunning, he will cause deceit to prosper under his rule, even though it was brief. He will exalt himself in his heart. He will destroy many in their prosperity. He will even rise against the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human means. He will destroy many. Mothers and babies who brought their babies for circumcision were paraded around the city by Antiochus and he threw them off the walls and killed them both. Rabbis who circumcised to seek to impose that part of the ceremonial law on Israel were themselves put to death. You want to circumcise your babies, we'll circumcise you. And their bodies were slit and hacked. Jews who sought to worship Jehovah were burned alive. They were forced to eat pig and sacrifice to the Greek gods or die. He stood up against the prince of princes. He substituted a Greek deity above the altar. The chambers of the holy place were used for his lewd orgies, far worse than Belshazzar. Belshazzar used the temple, the articles of the temple. He used the temple itself. But notice the language in verse 25, how consistent it is in Daniel in one way or the other. But he shall be broken without human means. He failed to accomplish his goal. He never realized his goal. Abruptly, after a very painful but brief illness, he died. And there was never again, except a couple of hundred years later, anything like it among the Israelites. Now it's obvious when you read this, and even the language, that people will conclude that this is referring to a future Antichrist. Now, chapters 11 and 12, although we don't have time to get to them, do, I think, speak prophetically more of a future Antichrist. But here again, we're dealing with Antiochus primarily. But remember that there are shadows in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of shadowy things that prefigure the coming of Christ. They're full of shadowy things that prefigure the faith of God's people. That's why there's a Hebrews 11. There are shadowy things that prefigure the development of the kingdom of God. That's why there's a conquest of the land from Canaan. And there are also shadowy things that prefigure Antichrist in any age and the Antichrist who will come at the end of the age. And so here certainly there is that shadowy picture of the Antichrist who would come. A dreadful power that would seek to destroy the church of the Old Covenant or the New Covenant doing it by invading the holy things of God and seeking to make the sacred things into the secular. Isn't it interesting? Israel began to secularize its religion. God said, you want to secularize religion? I'll give you pigs, I'll give you pagan idols, and I'll give you a bloodbath. Because God's principle of judgment is often to give you exactly what you want. You want to be like the world. Then I'll give you the world. And that's just what he did. The common denominator you'll notice as we've gone through these things in Daniel. Chapter 1, the world will seek to capture God's people through education. Chapter 2, the world will seek to capture God's people by making empires of man. Chapter 3, the world will seek to get you to bow to its idols. Chapter 4 and 5, the pride of man will be used to exalt itself against God. Chapter 6, as we'll learn tonight, God says, you paid a man. The homage it should only be given to God. And chapter 7, the kingdoms of the earth are going to oppose the kingdoms of heaven. But in every case, Satan is saying, you're going to be as God. 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 It never works. Because God is jealous for His own glory. Notice the conclusion of the matter. Verses 26 and 27. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision. For it refers to many days in the future. Here is a confirmation of the truth of the dream. These things are true. 
and they will be confirmed in history, but they're not for now. They're some 370 years in the future, and in terms of serving as analogs for far more down the line, seal up the vision for these days. And Daniel fainted. Probably the way you feel after two hours of this stuff. He couldn't take any more. How would you feel if you were picturing the kind of persecution that's going to come to a church in which moms and babies are going to be killed for being faithful and your children are going to be killed for worshiping God and clergy people are going to have their throats slit? You can only take so much of that. That's the magnificent humanity of the Bible. Daniel understandably fainted and he was sick for days because he loved the church. He loved God's people. He loved the work God was doing. And it was almost as if he couldn't bear it. But God said, I'm going to send it anyway. And then remarkably, afterward I arose and I went about the king's business. I was astonished. I was amazed at the vision. But no one understood it. Apparently he tried to explain some of it to people. <laughs> and he said, you crazy? What do you do with this stuff? Why is a whole chapter of Holy Scripture given for this? Brothers and sisters, even the insignificant things in world history are always related to the church. Christ is building His church and all the powers of history are used that He'll build it, even severe persecution. And that's what's taught here. We live in a day in which, especially in our culture, it seems that everything appears to contradict that, doesn't it? Religious apostasy. I can understand why Harold Camping gets a hearing. I really can. His hook is the apostasy of the churches. And I listen to that, and when he says that, I have to say, you're describing it exactly right. People who believe the Bible look at words in black and white and say exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. And then they'll give you all kinds of reasons from the Bible why their view exactly opposite to what the Bible says is true. Read the arguments for same-sex marriage in the book over there. People will use biblical texts that condemn homosexuality to say, oh no, really, they're speaking in favor of homosexuality. That's apostasy, folks. Banding together around our common unbelief is apostasy. You have that coupled with growing secularism in our culture. And that's what it is. Family subordinated to the state. The church is not expected to contradict anything that comes in social policy. We are to be good little inclusivists who take in everything. I mean, you really have got to be willing to have someone who's perverted play the organ in your church. You know that. In New Jersey... In a church, not an Orthodox Presbyterian church, but a church in which I know the elders very well. One Sunday, there were representatives of homosexual groups that were there to check to see if the pastor said anything against homosexuality so they could come up with a court case. And you see the pressure to... What the church will do. And this is what the church... You know, people don't usually say, Oh, no, we're in favor of homosexuality. They don't say that. You know, maybe we ought to look again at what the Bible says. And the world encroaches in the church the same way it encroached upon Israel. We seek to take Christ out of the picture and dethrone Him. Revelation 13, there's a beast from the sea, there's a beast from the land. Government and religion conspire together, the religion of the state, to thwart the church. And that's a fearsome thing. Because we may very well live to see the day in which if you want to be consistent with an exclusive Savior, Jesus, and an absolute word called the Bible, you're an enemy of the state. Because remember what America is all about, folks. It is a place in which people of all practices, all creeds, is faced with that under the power of the beasts. And it capitulated. And God judged it. 
Now what do you do with that? The key is in verse 27. Afterward I arose and I went about the king's business. There wasn't anything Daniel could do to change that. It was going to come in the future, but it was going to come. He went about his business. Look about Psalm 11. Psalm 11, in so many ways, is like this. How often we think of this in our own culture today. The confession of a believer. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul? And now there's quotation marks that should begin at the next phrase, ending at the end of verse 3. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? People are saying in David's day, flee, David. Look, the wicked bend their bow. They're getting ready to shoot at you. They're going to destroy your heart. The whole foundation of our culture is going to be destroyed. What are we going to do? That's just what Christians say today. David says, how can you say that? How can you say that? The Lord is in His holy temple is His answer. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. He tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, His soul hates. Upon the wicked He will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. He'll judge the wicked, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. What do you do? Brothers and sisters, whatever comes, you be faithful to Christ. We are not going to be able to change by the people that we elect to office or don't elect to office any persecution God may want to send upon an apostate church. It's going to come unless we repent. What do you do? Be about the king's business. Be faithful. And even though the world will want to push you into its mold, you walk in holiness. And if that means our churches need to shrink because it's so queer that we've got people that really believe this book, then so be it. Don't let the world push you into its mold and you keep yourself pure. Because the erosions of the world as it was to Israel, as it was to the church in the early centuries under Rome, are constant. Thinking every single thought after Christ, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I'm not sitting here saying, Oh Lord, will you please come back and just take us out of this mess? I love the story of John Wesley. There's a similar one about Luther. Someone saw John Wesley on his horse and said to him, Mr. Wesley, if you knew Christ were going to come back at noon tomorrow, what would you do? And John Wesley took out his time manager and he read off all the things he'd scheduled to do for the next day. And he said, that's what I'll do. And that's what you do. You'd be faithful to the Lord being about the king's business. Power of evil is great. Yes, it is. But what God does is when the power of evil overreaches its bounds, God stops it. The power of evil overreached its bounds when it came after Christ. Christ didn't shun the greatest enemy. He faced it. And He won. And don't ever forget it. Because the reason why all of these things in Daniel are true is because Christ, the little stone, won the battle. And so God says, you stand firm in the strength of His might. Don't you back down if they put a knife to your throat, to slit your throat, if you bow down to Christ Jesus. You say, Lord, I'm going to overcome by the word of your testimony. And when they say, how can you be holy before this holy God? Say, I've got the blood of the Lamb, and I overcome in Him. Ah, but we'll put you to death. My God says, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. But don't back down. As we close, look please at Habakkuk chapter 3 and verses 17 and 18. Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Habakkuk also was before a God who reigned. 
And you are too. Habakkuk before, was before a very wicked Babylonian army that would come and invade, just as we may be. What's the response? Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And He will make me walk on my high hills. Even as Ridley and Latimer were being burned in the stake in England. Latimer says to Ridley, who began to fail a little bit before the fires, Brother Ridley, play the man. Be faithful unto death. And by God's grace, we shall set such a fire for Christ. They shall never be put out. And that's the faith of people who know Daniel's God and Daniel's Christ. If you've got to go to your grave for your faith, go to your grave with the words saying, My Lord shall reign until all of His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. Amen. Let's stand and let's pray. Our Lord, thank You for these sobering lessons about sore trial and persecution that come in the very midst of Jesus building His kingdom. Lord, thank You that You put these two chapters together because they give us a perspective on Christ's victorious kingdom and the chastening that you must send to your people. Our Lord, thank you that you are sovereign over both, and thank you that you use even the blood of the martyrs to build your church. Our Lord, we pray for repentance for our land, but we pray even more for faithfulness for your people. For if the salt loses its savor, and the light becomes darkness, what hope is there for our land? Make us a salty people. Make us a people full of the light of Christ. And our Lord, might you be pleased to bring reformation and revival in the churches of our land and so bring blessing to our nation again. But, O oh God, should it be your will that you cause the power of Antichrist to prevail to any extent, we pray, our Lord, that we will be as the faithful ones of old who overcome by the word of Christ's testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. Our God, remind us that he who overcomes shall receive a crown of life that shall never fade away. Give grace to us and to our children and to our children's children until Jesus comes, that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.